Matthew 7, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught his disciples, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown to the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. Jesus uses an analogy that cuts both ways. Men are fruit bearers of one kind or another, of evil or of good. As goes their heart, so goes their fruit. The Apostle Paul, when he was instructing a young pastor, Timothy, he said in similar fashion, he said in 1 Timothy 5, 24, Some men's sins are clearly evident, preceding them to judgment, but those of some men follow later. Likewise, the good works of some are clearly evident, and those that are otherwise cannot be hidden. His point is that sooner or later, people are going to reveal themselves. It is ultimately going to be revealed in judgment, but sometimes before then. And when great sin reveals itself, it is always a cause of mourning. But likewise, when great obedience, when righteousness reveals itself, it is a cause for celebration. We come back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. We find that Paul is continuing his celebration of righteousness manifest, of faith's testimony in the case of the Thessalonian church. What is happening with them is not ending merely in Paul's own personal happiness in the Thessalonian or the Thessalonican project, but he is rejoicing in the rejoicing that has gone on outside of their small kingdom into the larger kingdom of God. Their faith is reverberating throughout the whole world, and it is a point of encouragement, of inspiration for the whole church, and it is still benefiting us today. So let's pray that the Lord would, would show us that benefit, that we might learn from the example of this church. Let's pray together. Our Lord God, we desire to be taught by your word. We know that we are so weak and poor in our understanding. We are so forgetful and we need to be reminded. We pray, Lord, today that as we listen carefully to what Paul has written to this church, what he has written about this church, that we might be instructed in our church and respond to you with faith and obedience for your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Paul begins thinking through where he left off and and talking to us about the reason for his thanksgiving. And we saw this, if we go go back just a few verses, two through four, we read, Paul says, We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, your labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our God and Father, knowing, beloved brethren, your election from God. And now, as he continues on in verse 5, he, he explains to us what is both before and after his giving of thanks. What is the, the cause that would stir up his reason to give thanks and how that is continuing to reverberate outward. He begins there using an interesting term. I hope you caught this. He says in verse 5, for our gospel did not come to you in word only. That's an interesting thing to say. Our gospel is if in some way Paul has possession of the gospel. That, that he and Silvanus and Timothy, that somehow they had a particular version of the gospel that's different than, say, Matthew or James or, or, or someone else. But it's not the case that, that Paul is differentiating himself from any of the apostles. This is a shared faith, something that Paul likes to talk about, but he is differentiating from other gospels. And he does it in a lot of different places. First Thessalonians 2.2, 2, he talks of the gospel of God. He repeats it a couple of more times in that chapter. 
First Thessalonians 3, 2, he says the gospel of Christ. Second Thessalonians 1, 8, he says the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. He, he wants to talk about a particular kind of gospel that is, that is different from others. Turns out that they're competitor gospels. There are, there are other gospels that are out there in the world. And there's one particular gospel that is in the face of everyone in Thessalonica. That is the gospel of the emperor. The emperor has, the, the, the empire is, is, is filled with, with different competitors to the true gospel. But the one in particular began 63 years before the birth of our Lord Jesus. A birth not in Nazareth, but somewhere else of a man named Gaius Octavius that history will come to know as the nephew of Julius Caesar, who will be his adopted son and heir and is going to be the future Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus is the founder of the Roman Empire. He is the one that transformed Rome into something other than what it was before. He established the Pax Romana, the, the Roman peace, which transformed the ancient world. He was a big deal. One commentator writing about him says the news of the transcendent event in the life of the emperor as well as his decrees and discourses was proclaimed throughout Italy and the provinces as the gospel. There's one famous inscription, I I, I shudder almost to read it, that speaks of Caesar Augustus. 9 BC, it is written of him and of his gospel, it says pertaining to the day in which he was born and the day of his coming to power It says it was a day which we may justly count as equivalent to the beginning of everything. If not in itself and in its own nature, at any rate, in the benefit it brings. Inasmuch as it has restored the shape of everything that was failing and turning into misfortune and has given a new look to the universe at a time when it would gladly have welcomed destruction if Caesar had not been born to be the common blessing of all men. Whereas the providence which has ordered the whole of our life, showing concern and zeal, has ordered the most perfect consummation for human life by giving it to Augustus, by filling him with virtue for doing the work of a benefactor among men and by sending him, as it were, a savior for us and those who come after us to make wars to cease, to create order everywhere. And whereas the birthday of the God, meaning Augustus, was the beginning for the world of the glad tidings, the event, the evangel, the gospel that I have come that that have come to men through him. The celebration of Caesar Augustus is is comparable to anything that you will read in Scripture about our Lord Jesus Christ. The praise sounds so familiar, just not the recipient. And when you hear those words, you hear blasphemy because you you know the one true gospel, not this one, but this one was the prevailing gospel in the empire. This is what the Thessalonians had heard since their birth. This is what was continuing to resound throughout the the, the empire among all those places where Paul is going with the gospel is there's already a gospel in place, the the gospel of Caesar Augustus. He was their savior. He had given them peace. He has restored them from what was failing and fallen and broken and, and fixed it all so it would seem. But the gospel which Paul preached, his gospel, when he says our gospel, his gospel is far more astounding than the gospel of Caesar Augustus. In the moment, yes, Caesar Augustus was more popular. He was more thought of. He was more revered. He was more honored in worship. But he was merely a pretender to the throne. He was doomed to diminish. His his retreat into the background was certain. 
He was going to be reduced to something unlike what would ever happen to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's going to be reduced to a a matching question on a, a world history class. But Jesus is going to rise he is, his kingdom is going to grow. It is going to spread to the ends of the earth. And Paul is going to be the vehicle for proclaiming that true gospel. Such as he will write in 1 Corinthians 15, 21. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For then Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. Each one in its own order. Christ the first fruits. Afterwards those who are his at Christ's coming. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and all power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet and the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Paul was preaching a a victorious gospel, one that is going to transcend anything that they knew in any way that they knew it. One who could go so much further in his reach than, than Caesar Augustus ever could because he could not reach into the realm of the dead because he was already dead. Immortalize them as they tried to do, instigate worship for for Caesar Augustus. It it would never succeed in the way that Christ would succeed because he rose himself from the dead. And so Paul preaches Christ's victory and he preaches his particular victory that takes place in Thessalonica. Among among the early conquests, they were one of those churches, one of those, those people who had been formed out of idolatry, brought into this marvelous faith. He says, our gospel did not come to you in word only but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance. The gospel had worked. It worked in the preacher and it worked in the people. Think about what had happened in Paul. He was, he, the gospel had enabled him to do what, what, what he had done. There was, there was certainly there were the signs and wonders that were part of his ministry. He testifies to these in multiple places. Romans 15. He says, For I will not dare to speak to any of those things which Christ has not accomplished through me in word and deed to make the Gentiles obedient in mighty signs and wonders by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and round about to Elycrium, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. Again and again, he talks about the signs and the wonders and the mighty deeds of God, those worked in the name of Christ that, that, that brought about this, this, this confirmation of the proclamation when he spoke the name of Jesus and called men to repentance so that they could, they could understand there was truly power there. In Acts 16, we read about, about his, his presence in Philippi and what happened when Paul cast out a demon of a slave girl who was, who was, being, who was being exploited and, and how, how, how God granted an earthquake to, to shake off the power and the bondage of the chains that, that Paul was in in prison. In Acts 17, when we read about the formation of the church in Thessalonica, we don't read of any particular miraculous works, but it doesn't mean that they weren't there, but certainly we know what was there. Turn back in your Bibles to Acts 17. We've looked at this passage before, but in this passage we see the the founding of the church in Thessalonica in verses 1 through 9. It says there, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. There was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as was his custom, was... Uh, as his custom was, went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures explaining and demonstrating or committing to them that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and a great multitude of the devout Greeks, not a few of the leading women, joined Paul and Silas. 
you keep reading, you find out that even those who, who opposed them, talking about them, cried out and said, these men have turned the world upside down. They saw the unmistakable power of what the gospel does in transforming people's lives, taking their, their heart, their orientation, their direction, their drive, and pointing it in a completely different direction altogether. The gospel had, had power. And that power had worked in the congregation so that all the citizens in Thessalonica are having to contend with who is this man, Jesus Christ. And some of those citizens embraced by faith, they were, by the predestinating and electing grace of God, they were those who would become citizens of the, of the city above. Who would know Christ by faith and know his salvation. And so they would be granted much assurance or supreme fullness at that truth. They knew that there, there was no greater truth to be possessed than the one that they had in Jesus Christ. It trumped all other truths. It's interesting. Paul reminds them as you go back to our passage in, in 1 Thessalonians 1 and verse 5. He says, as you know what kind of men we were among you. He reminds them of the part that he played. And, and, you, and you might think that this is Paul bragging in some way about he ministered to them. But it's not the case. He's actually making little of himself, as he does everywhere else. What kind of men was Paul when he was among them? Well, we know his testimony. Everywhere he goes, it's clear what he is. First off, he is faithful. He proclaims the word. Think of, of his testimony to, to the church in Ephesus, or the elders of Ephesus, when he met with them in Acts 20, verse 27. He says, For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. He told them all that he knew of scripture. He proclaimed all that was, that was relevant and applicable and true to them as he could. He didn't hold back anything. It, it, no secrets, no, well, let me keep out the bad parts. He preached the suffering of Christ and the suffering of believers. He preached the blessings and he also preached the dangers. Part of his proclamation by his presence is that he was a servant Paul is not ashamed to embrace the title of slave. He calls himself one in Romans 1.1, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, or a slave of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 4.1, he says, Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. 2 Corinthians 4.5, he says, We do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord and ourselves, your bondservants, for Jesus' sake. Paul owns the title and he lives the life so that he can say this everywhere he goes. And no one says, no, Paul, that's not true. Yeah, I remember how much money you took from all of us and, and how, you, how you were exploiting all these relationships. When he says he was a bondservant to all, when he, when he made himself a servant to so many, it was, they, they, could, they could bear witness to it. It was unchallenged wherever he went that such was the case. And the last thing you could say about, about Paul was that he was a sold-out representative he believed the product that he was pitching. I don't know if you, any of you remember the old hair club for men commercials. They're more relevant to me than some of you. But back in the day, there was a commercial. And they advertised one of the great marketing geniuses of all time, Cy Sperling, the hair club for men. He gets on and he talks about his product. And I don't even know what their product was. I doubt it could work on me. But at the end of the advertisement, he would close it out by saying, I'm not just the president. I'm also a client. He was a user of his own product. And then he flashes up a shiny bald picture of himself and then he see his glorious hair in the, in, the, in, the, in the commercial. But this is Paul. Paul, Paul is not just a, a paid informer of other people. 
He is someone who has owned and possessed the gospel for himself and he knows how desperate he is for the truth of who Jesus is. So he spoke to Timothy, 2 Timothy 1.12. He says, For this reason I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. He knew that there was nowhere else to go but to Christ. Just as Peter said, you have the words of life. Where else shall we go? And so Paul serves them out of conviction. He is, he is loyal to them in the church. And in turn, that they have they've rewarded that loyalty. Look at verse 6. Paul says, and you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. Paul is again giving thanks because of the, the manifestation of their faith in their life as a church. The ESV says it, I think more usefully and more literally, it says you became imitators of us and of the Lord. It's not just a question of them following in, in the same direction, but the fact that they were, they, were, they were showing the same pattern of life and the same experiences. Notice in verse 6 again, the middle part, what does it say? It says he... Having received the word, how? In much affliction. When they received the gospel, when they believed the proclamation of who Jesus was, they believed to the saving of their souls, but they also did so to imperiling their bodies. Is by embracing Christ by faith. They were inviting persecution. Their profession of faith, their profession of faith, their baptism their association with God's people, their participation in the Lord's Supper, their submission to his word and preaching, their publicly praising him. All of those things were, were, were flags that are saying, we are radically different and we are not going to worship a false god. We're going to, sell it. We're going to separate ourselves from the idols of the nations and from, from all these things that are tied together with them in our culture. We're going to make ourselves as weird as we could possibly be. And that antagonized people. Not that they were antagonizing anyone. They weren't fomenting rebellion. They weren't trying to to, to do anything that that deserved what the civil magistrate would turn and do to them. It turns out it was simply the fears of an insecure government when you have people who have power. And and they see another threat, another rival that that rises up. That they they, they turn their attention against them. May it ever make you such a good citizen... To follow Christ, they don't care because of the exaltation of Christ, because they want to be exalted themselves. And they're threatened by the invisible reign of Jesus Christ. What he has, what he possesses, the loyalty that he deserves. And that's the folly of unbelief. That's what unbelief does. Think about Psalm 2. What what does it say? Why did the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. They say, let us break their bond in pieces and cast away their cords from us. They don't want the law of God. They recognize that there is a king with a law who deserves loyalty and obedience. And they don't want that, and so they fight against it. Again, the psalmist in Psalm 14, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. But the Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. And they have all turned aside. They have become, they have together become corrupt. There is none who does good, no, not one. Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread, and do not call on the Lord. 
There they are in great fear, for God is with the generation of the righteous. There's these, these fools in the world opposing Christ, fighting against him, and all the good that he does, unable to help themselves because they've turned aside altogether. That was true in the day of the psalmist. It was true in the day of the Thessalonians. And it's true in our day as well. People still oppose the spread of the kingdom. And persecution is still everywhere around us. And that would seem like a reason for despair, right? That if you come to Jesus, that you come to imitate Jesus in his suffering, you come to imitate Paul in his suffering, you would think this is, this is maybe not such a good decision. But keep reading. What is Paul say, verse 6c, he says, You became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy in the Holy Spirit. Their suffering was a peculiar kind of suffering, a kind that's experienced exclusively by those who are in Christ. The joyful the suffering that has always been a part of the proclamation of the gospel from the very beginning. Matthew 5, this is what Jesus was teaching his disciples. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That same pattern, those who have gone before has suffered for identifying with Christ. It has been hurtful to them and yet there is supposed to be joy that goes along with it because of the very thing that you are being identified with Christ. It becomes a matter of practice for the disciples. Acts 5 Verse 40, after they, the, the, the apostles are put on trial, and Gamaliel gives this advice that, well, maybe we shouldn't kill the followers of Christ. And they say, okay, we won't kill them, but here's what we will do. It says, they called for the apostles, and when they had beaten them, they commanded them that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Whew, I only got off with a beating. When was the last time any of you were beaten publicly for expressing your faith? And then what did they do in response to that? It says, So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Peter explains this. He he makes sense of this for us. He says, beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trials which are to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings. That when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. He says that, that... that Christ suffered, and when we suffer for his namesake, we are being identified all the more closely to him, which is the safest place that you can be. There's no better place to be than to be identified with the Lord Jesus Christ. However foolish you might look, however much pain you might endure, to be in Christ is the only safe place for anybody in eternity. And that's why James can begin his letter with this ridiculous statement. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. That makes no sense in any other world but in the world which is true, which we live in, which is the one where God is Lord over all. And where Christ is his servant sent into the world to be our Savior and where those who look to him will live. The gospel makes sense of suffering. It tells us that it's meaningful, that it's useful, that it's helpful, and it's worth rejoicing in. And the Thessalonians got it. They were living in it. And, and, and Paul wanted to, them to know that what they had experienced in those early trials from the very beginning and, and the trials that certainly followed after he left and they continued to worship Christ is that not only was God watching, not only was Paul watching, but the whole world was watching. Look at verse 7. He said, 
that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. He says that their faith, that it rang out. It's a word that has three possible meanings. All of them are great. It describes a thunderclap, something that is loud and unavoidable. It describes the shouting of a multitude, whether they're in celebration or whatever. And it also describes a rumor that spreads everywhere. All of these things were taking place. the, The gospel was breaking in in particular locations, and they were one of those locations where the gospel had broken in. And it was upsetting the world. No one could avoid it. It was going to come to you in one way or another. You had to be confronted with the gospel by by witnessing what had happened among these people. Berea and Amphipolis are picking up on this as well as Corinth and Athens and eventually Rome and Jerusalem and the whole world are hearing about it. And guess what? We're still hearing about the Thessalonians today. It's part of our Holy Scriptures, our New Testament, that we read their story We recognize the work that Christ had done and that there were people who heard and believed and were transformed. That's a good reminder for us is that our faith is not a private benefit. Sometimes we we think that way. I kind of grew up thinking that way is that I need to get my ticket out of hell and into heaven. And once I profess faith in Christ, I got my card punched. I can put that in my pocket, just make sure I've got it with me if I need it. And then I'm good to go from there then on. But that's not the picture that you're given by Paul when he's talking to this church or anywhere else in the New Testament. It says that what we have, what we believe, should show up. People ought to see that you belong to Christ. Paul tells us that there were historical rallies rallies in terms of what happened to this this, this congregation. There were were manifestations, there were evidence of their faith. First off, they were hospitable. Verse 9, he says, you know what, uh, what manner of entry we had to you? They practiced hospitality. They had received Paul when he came. And this has always been a mark of God's people from, from righteous Lot to the angels of Sodom, Rahab, Abigail to David, his men, the widow of Zarephath. All these people who receive the, the, these, these, these gospel testimonies about the salvation that's being offered by God. They embrace that. But, but also not only that they, they, they welcomed him into their presence and fed him and cared for him, but that they heard him. They received the word. That was the most hospitable welcome they could give was to believe what he had to say and that was what they exercised, faith. You're doing that to an extent as well. Again, sometimes we need to be reminded that we are involved in bizarre rituals. Once a day, or once a week, we take one day out of the week and do radically different things than what the rest of the lost world does. We get dressed up nice. We go to extra efforts in the morning to look a little bit different than we do on other days of the week. We get up early on a day when no one else is doing that in order to come. And we come in and we, we fill this room with these loud noises and songs that are not exactly going to make the hit list. They're not burning up the charts, what we're singing in here. The people that you're with aren't likely to improve your reputation. The coffee in the fellowship is great, but not that great. There's a world of vastly more impressive, more talented more entertaining people, more indulgent things to go and do besides this. This is work to sit and to listen to a preacher and to, to, to sing these songs at the top of your voice, to stand up and sit down over and over in these hardback pews. All of that is a kind of work, but that is, that is a hospitality toward the word of God. 
You want to hear what's being proclaimed, and you're rejoicing to proclaim the name of Jesus Christ and his work. There was a physical welcome, but more importantly, there was a welcome to Paul and his word. And the response was that they repented of their idolatry. That was the second fact of their testimony, is that they broke from the traditions of their fathers. They separated themselves from their culture. They became obedient to the faith of the scriptures. He says, you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Their lives did change. They did make a break from those, those idols and come to worship the invisible God. Clearly they had believed and they were persevering in the faith. The third fact about their testimony we see in verse 10 is that they were waiting for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers from the wrath to come. They would taken on that Christian posture of expectation about the future. Of saying, I believe Jesus died and that he rose again and that he's coming again. He's coming back and he's going to right every wrong. He's enthroned now. He's reigning now. His kingdom is growing now. But there's going to come a day where every wrong is going to be repaired. Every sinner is going to answer for his sin. And all those who believe in him are going to be vindicated. They're going to be forgiven and they're going to be glorified into a place that they don't deserve. He is going to restore all those things that are broken in a way that Caesar Augustus could not even begin to attempt to try. Paul said to Titus, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. This is what the Thessalonians were doing, and this is what we ought to be doing as well. Let's close with a few applications here this morning. One of those is looking back to that phrase of Paul for our gospel, reminding us that there are other gospels. We tend to think that there's only one because we hear the word gospel only in one context. The only time you're hearing the word gospel is here, right? In this building among these people. We have to be reminded the word gospel is just an old English word that means good news. And it's helpful to to keep in mind that that good news is something that we are constantly on the lookout for. We're seeking good news, we're pronouncing good news, and that's all well and good in its place so long as we don't have messianic expectations about a good news that doesn't have a true Messiah. Remember how Paul rebuked the Galatians? Galatians 1.6, he says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. And he has a particular thing in mind that was true in that church in, or, or among the churches in Galatia. And we have to recognize that there are other gospels that are kind of at work around us that are in competition. We have medical gospels, hopes that we have for deliverance from ills. We have technological gospels, things that are supposed to cure things that are broken, improve situations so radically that that, it changes everything. We have other kind of smaller gospels like marriages and graduation celebrations. Again, wonderful things in their place. Love technology, love medicine, love graduations and marriage. Those are all good things so long as they are kept in that context of recognizing that there is a giver of every good thing. And it's God, and there's only one Messiah that he gave. There's only one Lord Jesus Christ in whom salvation is to be found. Our gospel, 
is the good news that Jesus Christ has come. Just as Isaiah foretold, bringing with him peace and good things and salvation, those belong to him. Make sure that the gospel that you're holding on to, grabbing on to, that you are seeking after is that one that is declared in the Holy Scriptures, one which Paul had proclaimed in that church and was proclaimed in every church, is proclaimed in this church, that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he has come and that he has lived a perfect life and died a sinless death that sinners might be forgiven their sin and accepted in the beloved. Do you know this gospel? In a few moments we'll be celebrating the sacrament of the Lord's Supper and you have to know this gospel for no other allows you to come to the table. And then the last reminder from this this, this passage are the examples of faith. Remember Paul's dramatic and glorious salvation, his conversion experience where he was a blasphemer and a persecutor and an insolent man and God freed him from his sins but it wasn't merely to get him into heaven, it was to free him to do work. To set him on the path of declaring the gospel in the most hostile of situations. He did become a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. He, he, he did give himself over to that gospel proclamation as a genuine servant of the Lord. To the public. An ambassador of Christ to the world. And he lived his life among men in that short time so that he could say, Our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and the Holy Spirit and much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. The Thessalonians knew Paul's life. They knew his unshakable faith. And they imitated it. They were followers of his pattern with Paul and Silas and Timothy and ultimately of the Lord by embracing the gospel and its consequences for good or evil. And they became an example to others within and without the church. Their testimony was clear. And this is what our testimony should look like. Jesus taught us by example. He he set before us a pattern to follow. John 13, you know this passage well. He says, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, so you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. What the Lord wants us to do is to follow him in his humility, in his suffering, in his service to others. That which is demonstrated by Paul and that which goes on to be demonstrated by the church in Thessalonica is that they humbled themselves. Are you showing humility? Do you have something that someone can imitate in you that that shows that you know that you are not Lord, but there is another, that you actually own the gospel of that proclamation of that great Savior. Would your wife say that you know humility? Or your children? Philippians 3.17, Paul says, Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have for a pattern in us. Paul is bragging about other people. He says, there are other people that you should be imitating. Are you one of those other people? Can children look at you and say, that's the way to go. That's what my life ought to look like. Do people see a happiness in you associated with Jesus Christ? There's some people that I know that have been around in my life that they, they so love Jesus that it spills out of them everywhere. They, they, they get into a road rage incident, not them, but someone else, and they just smile and they tell them about Jesus. Do you ever see anything like that in your life? Paul will go on and say this church in his second letter. He says, For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us. 
For we were not disorderly among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but worked with labor and toil night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. Not because we do not have authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. Do you go out of your way not to burden others, but to serve and to bless, to expend yourself so that others can benefit from you? The The motivation is clear. It is not to be an example, but it is to follow Christ that others may see following Christ. To live in light of what he's done and his coming, to identify with him and with everything that goes along with him, whatever the cost is for you in these basic ways of service or in the suffering that comes to those who follow Christ. May we now look to Christ and look to identify with him as we come to the Lord's table. Corporately, we have have an opportunity to express our faith and how we live and what we testify to, but even in the Lord's Supper individually, we have to own that because we, coming to this meal, you're making a personal declaration about your need, your dependence upon Christ. And so let's pray and let's ask the Lord, even now in these, these final moments before we come to the table to prepare us to receive what he offers. Let's pray. Oh Lord God, we thank you for having so great a Savior as we have in Jesus Christ who is worth suffering for. And may we now in these moments know his suffering for us. We may be instructed in our hearts We may be enriched in our spirits, that our faith may be...